design system's always been like a contentious one for me, like personally, because um, when you're on the feature side of working on something, being told that these are the rules outside is quite hard, like hard to the stomach. Because yeah. like, no, no, I know what I'm doing. But then at the same time, as you become more mature as a designer, you realize, oh, listen, you're not designing a thing. You're designing something that's part of an ecosystem. And the overall importance of that of the consistency of that ecosystem requires you to use these things. It's like it's the same with branding guidelines. Like if you're working for Coca-Cola, you can't just redesign the logo because you feel like it. I mean, it'd be nice, but in order for like the overall to be part of the family, part of the ecosystem, your work has to feel like as a member of that family. And so it's the same thing like with design systems. Um, it can be very challenging for design systems because you're not designing the features themselves. That's the sort of downside. Hi everyone, welcome to Design Drives, where we interview the most forward-thinking, innovative creators on the planet to inspire and help you to reach your full creative potential. In the episode, I got the chance to speak to Mustafa Kodulu, who is a staff product designer at Twitter and formerly senior design lead at Google. Mustafa has over 20 years of design experience and actually a quite deep knowledge when it comes to the big picture of design, especially when it comes to design system, which he developed in multiple situations in his past roles. In the episode, we dive deep into the relation of design as a creative discipline and how systems and tools shape this creativity for the bad and the good. We also discuss why it actually helps designers to systemize their processes and how this actually allows designers to focus and where they actually can have the biggest impact, which is oftentimes the strategic side of design as well as the psychology aspects of the creative problem-solving process. I hope you enjoyed the episode. So I'm here with Mustafa Koduldo. Thank you so much for taking your time. No worries. So you calling uh, in from London. Uh, yeah. You're working at Twitter as a staff product designer. And we're going to talk a little bit about your work at Twitter. Uh, previously, um, you were working at Google and also made a lot of great experiences there. You have a lot of experience with design systems. So we're actually going to talk really about design systems. But there's more to design systems, I think, which we already learned. Like, I think we had a really good chat, like, beginning of the week. Yeah, uh, yeah. Also on, like, your thoughts on how do you intervent an experience? How do you invent? How do you integrate, like, friction sometimes into experience? How do you work with visual hierarchy? And a lot of things which you think are going to be super valuable for the audience, uh, for them to to learn. And you're going to speak at a conference actually in Munich very soon. We also spoke a few years ago called Push Conference. Yeah, hopefully in November. November, exactly. So yeah, I think this is also going to be great. But maybe in your own words, you can discuss maybe uh, or share a little bit about your journey because you actually have been at a lot of different places. I think it's going to be interesting for the audience. Yes, I mean, my original background was graphic design, web design. Uh, So I've been in industry like over 20 years. And so kind of jumped around as the technology evolved, you know, so as Flash came around and all of the interactive things that happened there. And I was really interested in moving image. um, But then obviously that fell out of fashion. So then slowly the web became mostly uh, WordPress layout (laughs) because the technology just went down. So you couldn't do all the interactive things. And slowly... You know, as the job titles changed, it went from web design to UI design to UX design, kind of. So my background is mostly graphic and web. So that's why I evolved. And then um, really started maybe about 2010 as the more pr- the practitioner side of UX. So when it comes to user interviews, like we did user research, but it's very light touch compared to like, the pr- yeah. uh, you know, if you compare it today. 
And so then I, was, I think really in like 2008, 20, 2010, like it, it really started to pick up. I think yeah. because of the iPhone, right? And, and I think like like just more sort of like more methods and more best practices got evolved there. Yeah, I think when it comes to digital design, um, UX practices were mostly in San Francisco and like California. Like a lot of those things, like you had human, human interaction uh, design stuff, but it wasn't like in the UK, it was very agency model led. So it, yeah. The, the practices weren't there. I mean, you see like a lot of like the agencies come out, like so Clear Left, for example, is like the most well-known one in the UK, I think. But yeah, you didn't, it wasn't really a thing. So that's when a lot of the conferences, like the conference world was basically educating like designers about these things as people were sharing ideas. And so I started getting more and more into the actual practices. Um, and then so at one point I was working for Macmillan, which is like the science publisher of Nature magazine. Uh, and so I had a very good German friend there, Sven, who was a doctor in interaction design. And so he had a lot of the theoretical PhD side and I had all the commercial and together we started developing like our techniques and our ideas together. So I had applied commercial stuff and he would be able to sort of go more into say, okay, what's the, the, the research in academia. So he bounced off. And so for two and a half years, that's when I really started developing um, the practices. And then at that point, Google kind of, I was also at the same time giving talks in the community, just because I really wanted to be a part of that community. Uh, and then Google saw what I was doing and they said, hey, would you, we're doing this thing called a design advocate, which is a designer who talks about design. And they had just released material design at that point, mm -hmm. uh, which is their design system. And so they were, and I was writing about, this was all on the side as my full-time work. And so I was like, yeah, this was like a dream job. I never thought I would work for Google because it's like, the idea for a designer that you would work at Google didn't make sense because like Google was an engineering company. Um, and so, yeah, interviewed, got in and then spent six years there, mostly as an advocate, like to begin with as an advocate and then started designing more of the products as I missed the practitioner because you're just talking about it and working on some things. But and then towards the end, I spent the last two years working on Chrome. So I was working on uh, the Android, Mac, uh, Windows for like web platform. Uh, and the web platform is basically the design components engineers use. So if you've got an e-commerce site and you want to implement a payment method that pulls the person's autofill or like data that they've saved on their um, Google account, you implement the widget, which I would have designed or like install the web app or uh, two-factor authentication. These are the things which I designed. And so it was almost the design system of the web. Mm. Uh, prior to that, I mean, I did some stuff on Material Design Lite, which was the web implementation of Material Design. And so I had all this passion, this interest of working on design systems. It was just at Google wasn't feasible because everyone's in California and that team's very California specific. Mm -hmm. And so Twitter came along, said, hey, do you want to do it here? And I was like, oh, my God, yeah, of course. So then I jumped over to Twitter last year uh, to be like their stuff designer on design systems. So, yeah, no, it's, uh, I've jumped around quite a bit, I suppose, in 20 years. But it's mostly because the way the industry has been, like job titles have changed so quickly. <laughs> I think now, uh, now yeah, product absolutely. design is the fashionable thing. It'll probably change in yeah, six months. I don't know. <laughs> it's annoying. It's annoying. Yeah. I mean, I have less experience than, you know, 20 years, but I also even in, uh, in my, my period, I've been seeing like a lot of different you know, job titles being, being thrown around. I think something interesting that you also mentioned is that basically also it was for you, basically that connection between art and then actually turn this into something tangible, which yeah. kind of interests you. Right. So the combination of art and technology, right. I think very similar to me also um like that that sort of like kind of how do you kind of like put 
sort of restrictions around the creativity and actually funnel into something that you know into into something that you know people can use and sort of that play with the restriction i think is kind of interesting yeah design systems always been like a contentious one for me like personally Mm -hmm. because um when you're on the feature side of working on something being told that these are the rules outside is quite hard like hard to the stomach because it's like no no i know what i'm doing but then at the same time as you become more mature as a designer, you realize, oh, listen, you're not designing a thing. You're designing something that's part of an ecosystem. And the overall importance of that of the consistency of that ecosystem requires you to use these things. It's like it's the same way with branding guidelines. Like if you're working for Coca-Cola, you can't just redesign the logo because you feel like it. I mean, yeah. it'd be nice, but in order for like the overall to be part of the family, part of the ecosystem, your work has to feel like as a member of that family and so it's the same thing like with design systems um it can be very challenging for design systems because you're not designing the features themselves that's the sort of downside because sometimes you're you're trying to create something without context that's why it's really like the communication between like the feature and and the design system is really important so you understand yeah so what people traditionally call like vertical and horizontal teams right yeah exactly design systems usually it's horizontal Exactly. One one great example of that was in the beginning when material design was actually forming, like the typography, the typography scale was like really bad for dense UIs. So like, I think when Inbox, I was interviewing like one of their um, designers, just trying to explain like how Google designers approach it. And it's like, yeah, if we tried to use the existing type system, we'd have like free emails on screen <laughs> because it's like, it's like, it's just so like so much space. And so then they took the designs to the material teams like this isn't feasible you we need a typographic scale for dense ui and together yeah. they were able to come up with like in context and so that was like a great example of like a horizontal team and a product team working together to actually um produce the thing or like when they had guidance um so like bottom navigation on the android system was quite controversial because it was an ios pattern and material wanted yeah. to be opposite to ios but then like some of the keep folks who'd like keep us like a note-taking app on android they're like look our bottom navigation is popular with our users if we change this we see a loss in engagement and so you can't when as a design system team if someone comes to you says here's the data to prove that your pattern is damaging to our product you can't argue with that and so that's why it's like the guides versus rules approach yeah yeah. um so it's an interesting balance like uh, but you're designing tools right and so um the most, like, if you look at history of design tools, the most effective ones were the ones that were most easy to use, like adoption. You look at jQuery was easy to use versus the other JavaScript. You look at WordPress wasn't necessarily the best implemented technology, but was the easiest to use. Uh, Flash was really easy to use. That's what adoption happens. And so, like, when um, Fireworks died, uh, Sketch came about because it was really approachable, as opposed mm-hmm. to Photoshop, which unless you have a history of Adobe product, it's very hard to first like see. And so in terms of adoption, like the design systems, you always have to be like very approachable. And so that's an interesting approach because you're no longer designing a product, you're designing the tools that people use to build a product. So it's like an extra meta level of um, of consideration. Uh, no, absolutely, absolutely. What you touch on is like so interesting. I mean, the the font topic, I think a lot of people don't really understand it, but I appreciate that sort of like level of detail because um, like, not a font is not a font like you cannot just use the font everywhere right so i give you an example even at bmw right so um if you look at um uh, like there was also always a discussion about like you know font systems etc and like being in a car 
is very different to basically reading something on a poster, for example, yeah, right? so advertising. So like, you know, a font that works for marketing might not be a perfect font for the scenario of like reading information about like the speed you have, right? And, you know, other things like you mentioned, just the density, right? So sometimes, and like, I think a lot of people also don't know how much goes into sort of just basically setting up a font in the right way for the specific use case you are actually designing for. And actually making this, making sure the information you are kind of designing for actually gets uh, um, uh, basically uh, channeled in the right way uh, through the font. Um, and um, yeah, considering the scenario. So I think this is uh, very important. Yeah. Yeah, I A lot of the designers don't even, with their job, they don't even never have the chance to actually explore that because I think right now so much, there are so many design systems out there that you actually never really that discussion that you just opened up, for example, with like, you know, the density of a font and so on, I think very few designers actually have a, have a touch point with that, right? So Yeah, no, it was interesting. Like, um, a few years ago, like when I was at Google, I did like a design sprint workshop with an agency who were doing stuff for Mercedes. And one of the challenges they had is they had the branding guidelines, which had the typeface was a, a serif font, which looks beautiful on a magazine, but in digital UI, it yeah, was yeah. really not legible like it was too thick and it bled into different ways and so this is another challenging thing for like brands and products is how much do you give to the operating system versus how much do you customize yourself so on ios it's san francisco uh, and android it's roboto and on the web it's Arial or helvetica depending on the platform as the standard typical standard forms and so we were trying to argue like in the design sprint like saying okay your brand is really important but you need when if you want your brand to remain strong you need to pick the places where you actually use this typeface because it's not legible for large bits of text especially yeah. at smaller sizes yeah. um and i know in germany like especially when it comes to um legal compliance it's really critical that text is on screen to say you know and if it isn't that's like has legal implications but that text is not legible does that does that cause a problem as well which is another like touch point like especially in germany um and so we got through and said, listen, this typeface was designed for like these screens, like Android, um, like Roboto, and it's been designed to, to work on small, uh, small scale. So this actually will help deliver, but it's an interesting balance. So like at Twitter, we originally were using the default OS's typefaces mm -hmm. like San Francisco or Roboto. Now we, we'd created our own typeface called Chirp. Uh, and that was designed with a type foundry, like specifically to get to something that's legible, that still had the personality of Twitter on the platform. Um, and so that's another way to take it, but it requires a lot of consideration to do that. Like the, the designing of Roboto and then Google Sans, which is the new typeface, um, it really requires a lot of like typographics. Like me, I, I've designed typefaces, but like they're more display typefaces. Like you couldn't, they're not legible. That's yeah. like, and it's, it's a real um, specialist skill. It's like iconography, like we've been redesigning our iconography library to it as well. So it's like, what, that's a, it's, it's a, a whole new language within itself. Um, so that I think, th so the advice I would give to any designer is like lean into the operating system because there's a whole host of designers who've, and engineers have worked on that. And when your company or product is mature enough, develop your own if it makes sense for your brand. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, like even with... Um... San Francisco font from, from Apple, I think like you can also see like, I think the family of fonts also has been growing a little bit since the initial launch, I think with iOS seven, it was, or a little bit later, maybe because there are more and more use cases actually try to, you know, optimizing it for different touch points. 
And uh, yeah, I think like people really don't know like the, the complexity that, you know, or, like the depth that you can go in just on forms. Uh, and like to your point, like, you know, even an interface, it really differs, of course, um, maybe for some of the people in ours, this might be a low hanging fruit, but is it a headline or is it a body text, right? And we can yeah. be a little bit more branded on the headline if it's a big uh, and readable, uh, et cetera. Um, but with the body text, for example, you need to, you need to be really careful, right? Yeah, and, no, it's, it's uh, yeah. UX. So, I mean, typography and UX have a lot in common. Like, yeah. um, pipe design is like it's designed to for a specific flow how you read it. And so, there's a lot of like conceptual, high level like things that apply to both. You know, like that's it's not a surprise that you know Eric Spiekerman, who's the famous German typographer, yeah. fits really well at UX conferences when he talks about his typefaces in the process because it's it's much more closer to typography design and, and ux and much more close than say graphic design because there's a lot more designing of like where you're trying to lead someone similar to architecture you're trying to guide people through like a, a flow um so yeah yeah but and also now we have variable typography as well which brings a whole new dimension in customization and i've I'd, uh, a couple of months ago i was doing like some beta testing for figma like still introducing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. new type of like variable font so it's really interesting like you know um it's just how that is supported across different platforms you know i think that could i, I think will spur a renaissance but it's all dependent on the design tools that enable designers to kind of explore that space so yeah yeah i think it's um it's very important like very interesting what you mentioned about typography and like the connection of ux you can see this with all of the great creatives even in the past i mean if you study a little bit of like design history and you go back to his uh, architecture right um and like a lot of the initial first designers actually have been architects right and if you read about their books and what they wrote they already discussed ux <laughs> so yeah. so basically they were saying like okay i build like a building here on that hill in the morning the sun comes from here if people enter they're gonna feel like this so it's always been there and you can apply this to all of the creative disciplines. I think that very often with these people where the work really st stood out, is, but there was always a certain narrative around like the, the sort of audience experience, uh, either the visual experience or the more tangible experience with the artifact. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, yeah. there's, there's always a pendulum, like, cause there's the politics of it as well, where you have one end is the decorative design that's supposed to have like, some kind of spiritual meaning. And this is why the architect Lewis Kahn, the American architect, always says like buildings have to have a soul. So like religious buildings typically like there's symbolism, like in churches in particular, yeah. symbolism everywhere. And then you have the postmodernists who are like, no, this has to be purely functional. And so at the other end of the spectrum. And so UX kind of like um which which side to do people lean on? And like typography had this in the 90s where you had people were inspired by the Bauhaus, very you know, mm -hmm. pragmatic. And then you had people like um who are inspired by the punk and grunge movements where text could be a graphic that's not meant to be read you have graffiti you had neville brody uh stefan sagmeister like was all like distorting the type so it's like this imagery and so it's an interesting like you know um i don't know if we we've kind of had that in the ux digital design when the beginning where it's like all of the flash websites were unusable <laughs> just like yeah, yeah. really visually beautiful but terrible ux but now you have usable things that appear boring so i i wonder if the it, pendulum it's swinging and i think like what you can also see is like i think there's a certain 
like just like in the fashion industry. And I think like now also, I think like maybe it's because UX UI does not get bored, maybe, but like the, besides all of the sort of logic that is in place, there is certain also like there are aesthetic waves that are happening as yeah. more and more. I think what you can see science maybe one and a half years is, for example, this aspect of brutalism, right? Which is funny enough, sort of a word that you can also coin on the on on art or like architecture yeah. as well, where this was also a, tr a trend, right? You can see this with interfaces a lot that they're playing this brutalism aspect, right? Like, you know, basically doing like fonts, like vertical and, and so on, right? Yeah. And, um, and I think these are sort of like waves as well that you can now see within the um, sort of like UX UI uh, world. Yeah, and no, I think that usually it's down to the operating systems like Apple, Google, Samsung, Windows. Most, yeah, yeah, it's like who, they they can help kick off these things because they're the platforms people design. Yeah. But at the same time, like you know, what was interesting about material design is they were pushing for things which weren't really as cohesive, and so it was forcing engineers to build things, and then that triggers other interesting. Then that triggers things. a trend. You can yeah, see so this a lot actually with Figma, for example. If you just look at like how similar a lot of the designs feel like because they're picking the same toolbox, right? Yeah. If you just look, for example, there's a general trend to use like 3D elements, right? Or if you use the uh, use one of the plugins, um, uh, for example, on Figma, for example, I can aid or something like that, you automatically, like, like it's, it's very easy to pick these things, for example, and then automatically a lot of people are going to use that aesthetic, right? Yeah, I well, I mean, kind of it's, it's interesting. As we move from Photoshop to Sketch, you see uh, a, a decline in the sort of 3D, uh, skeuomorphic mm -hmm. style designs and so then it, everything becomes very block graphic because when you draw something in sketch it's always 2d vector so yeah i think the design tools do influence i mean i think when we spoke earlier on the week i was talking about like uh, if you looked at say andy warhol and the marilyn Monroe pictures and the the can of soup it was uh, silkscreen printing and but it had all this dot effect so that becomes almost the style but that was really as a consequence of the tool, because you couldn't, yeah, that's as yeah. realist, photo realistic as you could get it. So then it's interesting that becomes the style that's imitated, even though that's really a function of the tool. So I th that's always been there because it's really hard to design purely with digital tools. I mean, you could draw things. I mean, that's one way, but then that's only approximation. And I know what was interesting with the, when material design was being made is they literally used paper and would take photographs of say like the gmail icon or the original one and look at the how the shadows were and I thought, okay if we position the lights and define the rules of where the light source is it will give us this thing and they'll take photographs okay that's the icon that's made of paper and demonstrate a certain degree of depth and then turn digitize that that was a really interesting like creative approach to get to where they were it was really making the design tool work for them rather than them being dictated by the design tool. But I think that's just the, the risk of using plugins is you end up again, like, as you said, like everything looks the same. It's like, really it's, you have to think from a conceptual level, what's the thing you're trying to tell yeah, and then just try and pull it in different directions. Like logo designers, they'll do 20 different ideas and then trying to, restart like this concept and that's why i like about design sprints because people just generate concepts not necessarily with a certain goal right with a goal yeah exactly. yeah so like recently we did some design sprints at twitter like and the reason why is I, was, I was given a project of an area of the product i won't go into what it was but um i've never worked in that field before 
And so the first thing is, okay, let's get lightning talks, get everyone to do lightning talks so I can learn about that. And then the how might we note taking? And then just user journey mapping. It's okay, what's the job to be done? Like, what, what is it the user is trying to accomplish? And just going with the engineer, like flagging the high points and the pain points. And it's like, wow, like I'm learning all this information that I would never have been able to get had we not gone through these exercises and activities. And then so then when it came to sort of like the crazy eights where you're just sketching ideas, you're free from the design tool because you're just thinking conceptually, okay, how can we actually solve these problems for these users? And I think doing those activities, then you feel the more creative side as a, as a UX designer. Um, and so you're not being forced. And then so sometimes when you're doing more the, the advanced creative stuff, that's when you say, okay, I'm, I want to have this like uh, emotional feel. So when Twitter was... Um, working on its design system, it, it, the first thing is let's come up with principles, comparing themselves to other uh, social media companies. And we published this publicly. You can see like bullet points of the different, you know, how, what, what's the image we want to give? And if you start from that point, which is interesting for a designer to write stuff down, but it's actually really powerful. Like what, what are you trying to represent? And then, so then when you think, okay, then you, maybe you sketch the idea or you might go into Figma or whatever, then you're actually designing what you're trying to say rather than letting the tool pull you to this 3d effect or this trend or whatever yeah um but it, it requires a lot of energy and time like you know i feel like you know what you just mentioned with the design sprint and the you know going out of the the, the design tool in a, in a certain a certain way i think like as this getting more and more popular also there's a big majority of designers who never experienced that because there's so much into sort of flashing out screens that yeah. there is a sort of like of course like especially in this podcast we talk about this a lot like the other side of the design which is more about the maybe the strategy and the creativity of like coming up with concepts etc and i think like yeah i think like because design is getting so demanded right now on just specifically ux UI design that you know this is also a world of design that you know it, as popular it is it is also you know maybe not so accessible to a lot of people in the design community, specifically the ones that are maybe more uh, on roles that are more on the execution of the sort of concept. Yeah, yeah no, I, think, I mean, it's always tricky. Like I was working for like a newspaper publisher and we were just like told to just bang out the designs because it's advertising or whatever. Yeah. And that environment is really hard. Um, but I still would try and sketch things when there was more opportunity to do that. Like I yeah. think sketching, like, I remember there was, yeah. there was a comedian who said like when he was becoming a comedian, he was advised to take acting classes because that's all like uh, you're on stage it's all about a performance and so mm -hmm. acting will teach you like the sort of the binary of what a performance is and i think for design it's kind of like sketching and drawing that's the binary of design like you know the the ones and zeros so having not being not being like necessarily like leonardo da vinci but having some sketching skills or just having it in your daily practice I think reminds you of some of the more fundamentals of design. Like, so like when we do paper prototyping, like I did this with um, Delivery Hero in, in Berlin. I did a workshop with them and I was just showing them like what paper prototyping is and how uh, just the activity where one person is pretending to be the computer and you've got this like really basic rudimentary and someone's pressing the paper and the computer is moving stuff. And just seeing how, when you break it down to the baseline elements, how, they completely changed what they end up designing because what they had originally did was completely fail. And so it's like, if you break it down to like, you know, the Latin as it were of, of UX mm -hmm. uh, or of, of design, which is yeah. like the sketching, then you start thinking, okay, right. 
what 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 is design what does it mean to be design i always say it's contrast i mean that's the baseline everything you can define as contrast like you look at a piece a block of text there's no hierarchy there's no contrast you can't read it but then you look at another piece of text the title's enlarged there's indentation text is in there's uh top caps you know designing the contrast to make the flow of what it is you're creating and it's like the same with anything like you know to press a button on a kettle because it's sticking out because it's contrasting to the rest of the shape because it's that's yeah. the affordance and so that's how i kind of say it. it's like in, once you start understanding you're rediscovering that you realize that figma is the tool not you're yeah. not the tool <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and you and have so, to experience yourself as a designer in different tools which are maybe feel a little bit um sort of unfamiliar maybe at the beginning but it just makes you grow as a designer and uh, yeah. i think sketching being like one one of them for sure you mentioned google material design a couple of times and i think let's maybe talk about this um, shortly because i think it's so interesting to sort of the evolution that we are seeing when it comes to um, operating systems because obviously google material you actually has been brought up a whole lot of personalization right because there yeah. was a certain way how the design system works with like basically being basically driven by the background image, which is kind of interesting because that's what people actually change the most. People rather change the background image than actually going into like a theme picker. Yeah. But I kind of being driven by that, I think so interesting. And then like, you know, you could see like Apple has been now doing that push too. Um, and before even, I think like Apple did it. And, and I think even before Google did it, where a lot of like, I think there was some kind of hack on Apple Uh, basically that you could in a certain way you can basically modify your sort of home screen and basically pick different icons etc and i think people just do start to do this a lot i think yeah I, this this was always been like from mac os 7 i remember there was a plugin where you could change the trash can and so oscar from sesame street will come out and say <laughs> i love it because it's trash every time you just make folders to leave just to trigger that so the customization in windows obviously went out The customization my space like you know this idea where the user defines what the ui is to suit their personality yeah um but it's uh, it's existed for like you know, yeah um yeah always people always wanted to 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 like push the boundaries there the question is is it right <laughs> yeah so uh, kind of like i think like it's hard to see from outside but if you work on an operating system once you kind of learn that that this, this is the current this is always the ongoing discussion how much how much are we branded so, for example, at BMW, that's a very active discussion because the whole ex digital experience is very brand because it's a very emotional product. Like, it's very different to Google, which is a more sort of open software where more people has to be way more inclusive, right? So, of course, like, you constantly have the discussion, what is actually Google or Brand X and what is, uh, like, how much personalization we, we allow? And it's very different also. As I'm explaining this, I'm noticing it's very different to maybe like depending on the brand. But um, because there's always a fear, of course, of designers that people do ugly stuff. <laughs> yeah. Right? And, so, and I think that's a kind of interesting discussion now. Like both systems have been completely opening uh, up, I think, like in a controlled space still. Yeah. I think, like, very, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in the beginning, well, if we look at, say, design, the popular design systems, the, the one that really I think kicked it off was bootstrap, which was Twitter's one. Uh, and that was the idea of that because on the web, everything was inconsistent and everyone's making these custom components again and again. It's like, how do you make a baseline thing that's customizable? The problem with bootstrap is every site that used it, you could tell it was bootstrap. So it was like, it was so obvious. Um, and so when material design come, material design in the 
hierarchy. I mean, obviously Apple had the UI guidelines, but it was hard to really, it wasn't accessible, like, you know. Yeah. And so when material design came along, it was very accessible and very visual. Like yeah. you could understand what was going on. Really good documentation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, well, the product for design systems is the documentation as well as yeah. the components. Like it is, it is design systems product. Um, the challenge though, is the first material was that when you looked at Gmail and you looked at Microsoft's Outlook, without side by side, they looked identical, apart from one had a blue bar at the top and one had a red bar at the top. And so when it came to material two, it's like, all right, how can we, like we, we created these guidelines that were quite strict. How can we make it so that the personality of the product can still shine through by still living within the ecosystem of like Android? So like the, the pattern, the UX patterns are still the same, but it feels like a BMW app or a Microsoft app or whatever, but still a part of a family. And so Material 2 started allowing custom shapes and custom like typefaces to a much more larger extent. Uh, and then you start seeing the sort of that started going to the customization where Material U was like the next step in that, where that it's the user defining the customization. Uh, I have interesting thoughts about that like i think as a designer you have to make the decision like what works best because there's going to be some colors which just look horrible like some of the examples i see on google i mean the green colors just look like pee to me like it just it visually looks horrible and it's like why are you why are you giving so much control to the user like you are the professional you should be defining that i understand customization but i think i don't know it's like Imagine a car company and the user can define what, like, you know, the shell of the car. I mean, that seems a bit, or the color of the windows. It's like, no, no, no. There's reasons why these are defined. Here's yeah. a predefined list that you can buy, pearlescent paint, red, black, blue, whatever. But it's still within this control because you're the designer of it. And so I understand this kind of theming, but it just, it, it, it you, you look. And another thing is products don't like it, like product companies, because it's like, I don't want my. There's logo. a logo on it, right? There's a logo still on it, right? You have like companies with a hundred-year branding, and you're just going to give away the the core color, which is the identifier, out. You know, and it's like no, <laughs> like my product needs like like the there was a when I was working at Google, they changed all the icons of their apps, and it it was mocked internally. Like, how could you like? To this day, I still struggle to find Google Maps. Like because it's like okay you make them look similar but now you can't distinguish between them but that's a design flaw like things have to be identifiable um and i think if you add this next dimension of color that's quite painful um but you know i mean i i think it's good to explore these things i think because you might find some other use case that you never would have considered as a result so um but like we saw what happened, MySpace and Facebook. Facebook won because MySpace became a mess. Like it, it didn't win because it was a better product for at that time. MySpace had won, but they the customization killed it. No, very true, and that's a problem. All of the the, the all digital mainstream products face if they're not purely utility driven, right? Yeah, because they they you know. They get adding too many functions and like people can't follow at some point anymore. If they add the personalization on top at some point, like people just get like very lost. I have to say like with some of the applications that actually are very mature and then the add personalization on top, sometimes I'm 
like even sometimes a little bit lost maybe and then it feels too it feels very heavy and then you kind of wish for something that's just more lighter you know and yeah, but I mean, how much of that do people actually want? I mean, I, there was the, I mean, exactly. I know this, is like, this is a movie, but there was the the Steve Jobs film where him and Steve Wozniak in the film are arguing. Yeah. And Steve's saying people don't need customization. And he's like, no, they do. And I think there's a certain type of person who like maybe engineering mind who likes to tinker and change to see what could be possible. The majority of people just want something that works. Like, yeah. do I want my kettle to be personable to me? And I just want it to boil water. Like, you know, maybe you might change the home screen image because there is something sentimental about having your loved ones photograph every time you look at it. Uh, and there's also maybe it's, it's like your wedding ring. You you wear it maybe because if you don't, your partner will be like, why aren't you wearing it? So having their photograph on the phone, maybe there's like a social, like cultural thing there. But does that mean that you should style the colors of the device based on that? I mean, is that the reason why people change? Younger audiences, perhaps like younger kids who like changing things all the time but um i haven't changed my home screen image on one of my phones in about 15 years it's always been the same <laughs> like so but then i maybe i'm not the core audience that's the thing you know there's but, a differentiate there's a differentiation aspect to this as well that you are touching on basically sometimes it could you know differentiate to us like another solution if you allow for that and maybe cater to us like for example in what you just mentioned a very young tire group and i think that's also very interesting what you said about like yeah, like the brand, I don't know, maybe there's some kind of correlation between like the brand value maybe or the emotionalization of the brand and like how selective and articulate you actually have to be. Because like, if you look at really like high-end brands, they're like, but there's just one color, you know, like, yeah. that's it, right? And that's like, you know, it, it be, that's where people are gonna use it, right? And um, and uh, I think that that's very interesting. Well, maybe like maybe some of the more inclusive products, you can be maybe a much more flexible. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it depends. If you have a very uh, cultural icon, icon, then maybe like like the Twitter bird, like that's very iconic, like you know, yeah. or the Facebook F or the Apple's yeah. Apple, uh, that's really distinct. But then once you go from that, like you know, um, it it really depends. Like yeah, like a lot of the products, they, the color is maybe not even the the sort of like the key aspect, right? But yeah, uh, but then yeah. in terms of a UX point of view, maybe it doesn't matter so much because um, people opening apps becomes muscle memory. Like people don't use most of the apps people install will never use. And so they'll have a, a set number on their home screen and they'll just go to that regardless. And if the apps move around, it causes some kind of cognitive distance. And so they reorder all their icons. So maybe it doesn't matter that much, but I don't know. I think we designers yeah. should make the decisions, not pass it on to the user. The other aspect is the freshness aspect, right? I think like sometimes you need to, for example, visually change something to make people understand that there's a bigger functional update, right? yeah. a bigger product update, which is kind of also interesting, right? Where sort of like, it's almost like marketing, right? Yeah, it's like we need to communicate that this is the next version. So on the key shot, it needs to be visual, right? That this is something new, right? Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, you can sell obviously because if someone spends like a thousand euros or pounds dollars on a device and it looks exactly like their existing phone, the problem. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so which is an interesting thing, you know, um, but I don't know. The it, it, I mean, I think this probably is a pendulum. It'll probably swing back to being more um, restricted at some point. 
yeah but, but then you know this this is the mobile space on the web it's the wild west you can do whatever you want and yeah. <laughs> within reason i suppose if we're thinking about design systems is there anywhere so deep into it so what like i think like the overarching story here i think it's like systemization of basically the 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 execution of digital products and the development of developers which is which is on the one side of like closing down creativity but at the same time of course you still have a lot of opportunities and there's the push and pull that you were describing between like maybe horizontal and vertical teams in in, in a, a pro but if you're looking like big picture right like i think like more and more gets systemized but the where do you see design systems going forward like like if you think a little bit out like three to eight years like what do you think like what's the big story of the design systems do what do what do you think it's how it's going to impact designers in the long run i think i mean once they become more integrated into the tools then it i think that's when more interesting things can happen i mean one challenge that you have on design systems is how much of the thing do you build like you have this concept of tokens so the tokens are the baseline elements the typeface the colors the shadow um and so as a design system, design a systems designer you sometimes create components but it's like how much of that do you actually do should you be doing that like so long as you have the baseline rules of these are the margin padding and whatever allow the designer to be creative within that restriction any more restriction to that becomes problematic the downside is uh designers would end up creating I don't know, a setting UI again and again when really mm -hmm. it's more or less the same. Um, in terms of the creativity, I suppose it's like, what is creative? Like, you know, I mean, if, if you're trying to, if you want to create like artistic logo design, visual design from scratch, um, that's not really what the job is, I don't think, as UX. I mean, the creativity is like trying to get to, like for new products that you might be to, it's like amazing new UI um sure but like for most of sort of like the big companies you're trying to improve like a problem space yeah um and so like you see yeah. twitter circles which is like come out where you can tweet to a specific group of people uh you know because you might not want something to go out to everyone and so then it's like how do you help people do that and so you're designing the flow and then the ui around it almost the ui supplementary it's all about how do you feed this pain point that someone's trying to create the thing that you're you're designing it requires some new paradigm but then you always the ux you have a choice right you have uh you meet the user where they are and so you know where their mental model is or you have to teach someone a new thing so like pinch to zoom was a new thing pull to refresh was a new thing how do you teach people this there's like so then there's an expectation there's a whole onboarding thing that happens like that's creative so i mean that's when it is it's like i think for New UX designers sometimes it can be hard. Oh, what well, I have to just copy and paste these widgets and then relay them out. No, no, you're thinking about what is it yeah, that you're, yeah. the pain point you're trying to solve for the user, and then that's when you use the tool. And so that's why it goes back to the beginning of like sketching stuff out, like and paper prototyping, because then you can say, right, forget the design system. Let's think what is the flow, what is the thing that we're trying yeah. to do, and then you can work with the design systems team. Say like, you know, we need an illustration style. We need this visual, like you know. And that's when you, you're doing the creative thing, but it's intentional creative things. Like it's to help people do something. And so, you yeah. know, 100% like creativity, of course, is like a, a broad term. But I think like, as you said, like, you know, on the, what is the job to be done here, right? Yeah. And like, how can you sort of like come up with creative solutions there? And on, on, on that side, maybe, you know, 
it's not so relevant like how you actually execute it and later visually because i mean it should just like follow the system right and and um you know and then then basically it, it's actually make the ux designer focus on what where the user designer have can actually have the biggest impact yeah. which is not so much on the radius but it's rather on like how you actually design the experience if it makes sense how did we test it what do people where's the mental state like what's the mental model of people and a lot of other questions to solve which are probably even more important and then like okay if you actually want to execute something more creative then you actually maybe invest more into the ui then at uh, the later point but i think maybe for the ux side it just like helps yeah and i think the creative part is when you're trying to find what is the pain point yeah. so i mean to some of the stuff that we spoke when we, we in the introduction talking about um hacking user perception which is another thing which i've done like especially at google and perceptively understanding what people are trying to achieve and that's basically what i'm going to be talking about at like um push conference uh, and so one story which i always talk about is like houston airport and houston airport had a problem with passengers complaining about their luggage how long it take to come after their plane had landed and so they spent millions optimizing <laughs> the process employing new tech hiring new staff new training processes and they got it down to seven minutes but passengers still complained so they said okay what is the actual problem is it you can't get the suitcases quicker than seven minutes without damaging them like because that's realistically as fast and they noticed that the planes would park right next to the terminal building when they landed and so okay if we move the planes further away and make people walk what would happen and complaints dropped to zero and so it's like okay so it, the, the thing is, is like perceptively like seven minutes five minutes walking two minutes waiting oh my god my suitcase is really quick versus two minutes walking five minutes waiting and so then when you see like okay the pain point is the waiting is frustrating how do you actually solve for that pain point like and then that's when you start designing okay what is the solution because that's like that's a ux solution which might not be unethical but it's worked for the rubric of we need to reduce complaints and then you think to yourself okay is that the real pain point reducing complaints is it better education oh look your thing's going to be here in seven minutes where you know you're you know maybe educating the, the the passengers that this is how long it actually takes like you can only fry an egg in five minutes you can't do it in two minutes it's like technically maybe maybe two minutes but it, there's a point where it's technically impossible without salmonella poisoning right <laughs> and so that's when the creator how can we educate and then once you get okay this is the baseline concept what's the the airline's design system okay this you know this is the typeface is the logo and that's where the creative i think happens um, i mean and if if it's hard for designers then maybe ux you want to be agency and working in branding and that but then even then it's like you know how many times are you going to get to rebrand a large company yeah, most yeah. likely it's going to be a small company that no one knows about and so you know it's, it's uh, you know it's catch 22 for designers <laughs> No, and uh, yeah, uh, totally. I think it's so interesting what you mentioned with the, I mean, like there's a coin for this, basically artificial friction, right? You add artificial yes. friction to your user experience and or your customer journey, if you want to say so. And uh, there are many examples like this. And I think the, the example you brought up is like super cool. I actually have never heard about that story. Also, sorry, sorry, for example, integrated into a digital product, right? Like, you know, if people look at a spinner and if it's like, moving a little bit more dynamic and like people are, like feel like the waiting period is actually um the website is actually faster right or the pursuit yes. is less annoying right if you use in aspects like slow loading methods and like animations etc how a website is loading 
can really entertain someone and like people, you know, and not mad at like a slow website if it has to load like a heavy content. Yeah, I mean, there's also, I mean, there was a, a book called, uh, I forgot what it's called. It's, it's somewhere up in my my library. Um, he was a PhD. He worked at Microsoft and his whole thing was designing loading screens. And one thing that was interesting, he said, like, if you have like a loading bar, that's 100%, 100, 10% of the file is loaded. So you show 10% on the bar. That would be like the purest engineering way of doing it. But he says like, no, 10% of time is the same perceptively. And so... The, the patience of a person weans over time. So instead of showing 10% is 10%, wait for 30% to load and you show 10%. And as you get longer, you make quicker jumps on the loading bus and it feels perceptively fast. Yeah. Like YouTube does this, like when you load a video, Everybody. you have a loading bar at the top, yeah. it staggers and then loads because it's like, oh my God, it's, it's quicker. Yeah, it's, relief. It's you end with on a positive note, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so you think to yourself, well, that's a lie, right? <laughs> But then isn't like the airplane is a lie. Like it, it doesn't need to park over there. And so the question is like, do you like, is it ethical to do that? Um, and or is it about education telling the user, no, no, this is just how this thing is. It's like, you have a slow internet connection. What is your expectation here? But can you do that if someone needs to load a video quickly because they have to learn how to change an app? They ain't got time to be, you have to educate me on, <laughs> you know? So um it's it's an interesting it's an interesting dynamic. No, hundred percent. And I think you uh, you you're already touching on visual perception and you know getting people used to certain things. It's interesting looking at all of these features, trying to understand what people are trying to do. Like it's it, that's you know what is the job to be done. So I mean we were speaking about this earlier in the week. Defining the problem correctly. Yeah. So like Gmail discovered that people are saving large attachments to drafts and never sending them. It turns out that this was like in 2008 when Google Drive and Dropbox didn't exist. And so the Dropbox founder said, we were sick and tired of saving attachments to emails. We needed a, an experience. And I remember back then it's like zip disks and USB drives. I'd have loads carrying with me because that's how you carry data. It seems so archaic. Now it's like, you know, um, it's like caveman. Like if you think about it, it's like so backwards, but then the experience and in hindsight, it's obvious, but it was such a hard thing to do well. And then when Dropbox figured out the technical complexity the user experience was perfect um this is the accessibility right like drag and drop right yeah exactly i mean and that was that was phenomenal that was like something from the future now that's that's an expectation in terms of like everything should be syncing like that now but like back then that was and i think steve jobs apple tried to buy dropbox and they took him to his office and he's trying to schmooze them and then they're like, no, we don't want to sell it. And Steve's up screaming, you're not a product, you're a feature. <laughs> it's like, but it's interesting, like it's, and in a sense, he was right. It is, like, it's become an expected feature. Like you, people are not just on one device, they traverse multiple devices. And so, you know, so it's interesting how you, I call it user fudged experience where people are improvising the, the experiences of tomorrow with the tools of today. And it's often in a messy way. So saving drafts it's like how would you like, as a designer how would you tease that out what are they trying to do like how would you even go about doing that but you see that a lot like um sticky note paper is usually a telltale sign when people put in sticky notes and writing stuff and sticking it on on, on physical devices that usually tells something's wrong with the device so there was like shared last week where um there was like a tap and pay in the us and the the, the coffee shop's like no you need to tap the phone here yeah. 
Yeah. And and it's like they done it because how much time have they spent? No, no, no. Put your phone here. No, no, no. Because and that just wastes a lot of the barista's time, right? You know. And so, but how do you get that in digital products? It's much harder because you have to watch people. Um, so diary studies, ethnographic studies, if you can do that. Really watching someone using a product, understanding like what is the actual problem, right? And it's an interesting thing if you develop a product, you don't really know how people are going to use it. So some of yeah, no. just in a different way. So like they, they make their own solutions. They hack their own system. Like they're using Google for saving files, you know? Like yeah. Yeah. No, so, I mean, yeah. it was an interesting challenge, especially when I was working on Chrome at Google, because Chrome is basically like an operating system. Mm -hmm. And so you can't create standard prototypes and get people to run through it because a lot of Chrome's usage is about intent. Like if you're um, visiting a site, sharing your location, it's about the intent at the moment. Asking someone, would you share your location? It's completely out of context, so it makes no sense. Yeah. And so we would do a like what they call experiments, A-B tests, over 10% of the audience. And so you get an understanding of usage, but without the why. And then so you do some prototyping and try to map out the mental model of where users think data has been saved. And you like there's different techniques, but it's very hard to do ethnographic studies with like something like that because how do you watch someone 24 hours a day using their phone because people don't it's it's a yeah, very tricky yeah, thing yeah like with these products you open constantly it's maybe a little bit more let's say easy if you say like redesign a banking experience and like you know you watch someone like how they lock on their computer and like use it and like and so on but like with these instant experiences like of course like people also behave different like you know if they're in a testing environment so you need to do it need to work also a lot with data. What can you get from the user behavior data just out of the system? I think we need to uh, wrap it up very soon. Yeah, but sure. I think like something that I think I would be very interested because you have been working in so many uh, different environments. Is there any kind of particular project that comes to your mind where you said like, this was one of my favorite projects, specifically maybe also it you notice maybe the impact that you can have as a designer, maybe for yes. the end user, yeah. uh, for the business uh, or in any other way? I mean, I think for, at the moment, it would, would definitely be, say, like the stuff I did on Chrome. So I redesigned like their install UI for web apps. So you have progressive web apps, which is a website that you yeah. can install and has the capabilities okay. of yeah. um, of an app. Well, most, you see, the technology is improving all the time. And so if you look at the original install UI, which was just basically is a white modal that said as the home screen had no context. And so I went through a bunch of research like redesigning the iconography around it and trying to understand what people, what this means to people and basically replicated a uh, play store type UI. I mean, that was like, you know, because again, it was like for the last making it familiar. Yeah. For the last 10 years, users are associate installation with store UIs. 20 years ago, it would have been CD ROMs, floppy disks, yeah. downloads.com. Yeah. But the, the, the mental model has changed. So it's like, let's meet the people where they are. So yeah. the UI you show. So, you, developers couldn't show screenshots of their app, but so that's what we introduced. And it was quite like uh, the security team were not like, well, this is really risky. It's like, you know, we went ahead and did it because obviously there's like, there's a fear that people could be spoofed into installing nefarious things. But I mean, there's lots of like blockers. You, you don't prevent. have the security that, of course, the ecosystem brings, right? But yeah, yeah. Like, so the Play Store can, well, even the Play Store has been fooled. I mean, so yeah. all of them have, but. It was because you're going to a website and you're showing the URL of the website in the UI. There are ways to kind of mitigate it. And at the end of the day, you have to be, let, allow people to be people to make the choice for themselves. 
Um, and ideally, you would prevent nefarious things on the web to, to do that. But when we actually did it, it was like a big risk because it's like you're changing this UI. Um, but it was really successful. Like one of the major um, sites doubled their installation rate, like, you know, from 20,000 to 40,000 installs. Um, and, you know, all of the ma like major companies like Telegram, Twitter, base implement. This was, I think that's possibly what got me the job because when I showed them my portfolio, like, oh my God, he's designing stuff for us already. Um, and uh, Tinder, Telegram, basically everyone who begins at, at product with T seems to have implemented it. Um, and it was really successful. The, the web developer community loved it. I think that one component I designed, all these developers around the world using it, I mean, to me, and I felt like I was fixing something that was broken. And so that was, I don't know if I'll ever, in a, it's such a small thing, but I don't know if I'll ever have that degree of impact again, because unless you work for a browser, which is like Chrome has 3 billion users. Um, but, you know, like... Yeah, it's just, there's a scale involved, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's like such a small thing, like part of a big ecosystem. So that was really cool. And, then, you know, I've had many different things. Like I'm doing stuff at the moment, Twitter, which I can't share, but which is really cool. I'm having an impact on the team there. Um, but then uh, once you get to a point in your design career, it's not necessarily just about designing products. You're designing teams. You're designing processes to help I'm other sure designers junior to you to, to create things. So that's a lot of things which I'm looking at at the moment. Um, and so, yeah, like, you know, but, and then also it's a team sport. Like it's not you yeah. as a, the individual person. So, yeah, but like, yeah. The web app, the, the web, progressive web um, system is interesting or the, the progressive web apps. I also worked on a, on a few and of course, like it's very different to Android and iOS. Yeah. Um, you like for the iOS users, it's still like tough to kind of crack, but yeah, the, um, for the Android users, way more um, familiar. Of course, there are different reasons. Well, you know, Apple blocks everything because it's a. I think the idea is it's a risk to the App Store. But yeah, 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 yeah. I think like if Progressive Web App works, or like that principle of like you don't have to download anymore. Of course, like they can have a a large impact uh, to people because my application just might way more accessible um and instant to use right yeah uh and i think with the overall story i think you're talking about here is the law of familiarity right so picking up people where they are that's like key in user adaption so actually uh, i think there's not black and white i mean like there's also the aspect of newness and the excitement of something that is maybe different but when it comes to just like having the mainstream adapt to maybe uh, something new i think like being familiar and like understanding like okay what is their mental state okay they're thinking like downloading apps okay how do that how do the people usually what are the visual and interaction parameters there what could we mimic and like which steps we need just so we make it familiar and like which things we can actually drop because we don't need them and i think that, that's sort of like i think a good way to approach i think like still like very often don't people designers don't think about that enough like you know like what's the mental state of the person what's their expectations for the first three seconds when they open a website you know like and then when they land on it what did they actually understand but yeah yeah no it's, a, it's an interesting space yeah um so um Bustav, thank you so much for taking time i could continue to, for another hour with you i think like, <laughs> the chat is really good but uh, i think we need to wrap it up because of time and uh but thank you so much for sharing your insights here with the, with the audience on the podcast thank you 
All right, that was the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you give it a thumbs up and let me know in the comments about your thoughts and biggest learnings from the episode. I'm always super curious about that. You can also tag me in a post about your biggest takeaway and share your insights with others to pass on your learnings. If the episode provides you a lot of value, make sure to follow, subscribe and share it with friends and colleagues so they also have the chance to learn and grow. Until next time, cheers.